If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in Luke chapter 12. There are undeniably prevailing themes within Scripture. And Scripture has these prevailing themes because we engage in this sin often. And it needs to be addressed. And when we listen to the teaching of Jesus, we pick up on these prevailing themes and he's addressing directly sins that affect us. Last week, Jesus was dealing with hypocrisy, not because his disciples don't battle hypocrisy. And today, Jesus is going after a basic prevailing theme, not because we don't struggle with it, but because we desperately need to be reminded of how to deal with it. One word can describe how Americans, according to polls, are feeling about the way things are going. Bad. That's the word. The finding of a Gallup poll that measures the state of a nation and what a lot of other data is telling us is exactly that. Gallup has been asking Americans how they're feeling about different aspects of life and policy for the last two decades. This year, of the 29 different measurements, just 38% of Americans say that they are satisfied. That's an intentional use of that word. Because what I sense is being Americans and being people who inhabit earth, these kind of trends certainly affect us. It creeps into the church and largely we are dissatisfied. We're busier than we've ever been before, and yet not fulfilled. We have more than we have ever had, and yet that word, dissatisfied, describes us. We have more access to more information than we have ever had. We have more avenues to more material goods than we have ever had. We have greater quality of life and greater life expectancy than any generation that has ever existed, and yet we are dissatisfied, not content. We're chasing something that always seems just out of reach. I found this interesting. Harvard Business School and Forgive me for all of you alum that are in here. How many of you are Harvard Business School alum? None? Okay, I thought so. If you didn't fit that category, you're not going to fit this next category either. Harvard Business School undertook its study as the first of its kind study of over 4,000 millionaires in the United States. They made a very unique observation. This research team asked each of these millionaires a series of questions related to their station in life. One question inquired how much money they had, and the range swung from $1 million to much more than $100 million. The answers were predictable throughout. When asked how happy they were on a scale of 1 to 10, very few said 10. As a follow-up question, they were asked, how much money would it take for you to reach a 10 on the scale of happiness? Now, that's something you can think about for a second. 
This series of questions to this group of millionaires had this question responded to in this way the most. The majority of them said, if I have twice as much as I have right now, I would reach 10 on the happiness scale. What was interesting was across the spectrum. It did not matter if this person had 1 million or in excess of 100 million. The most prevalent answer was still twice as much. And we all know that that wouldn't get it done. Mark Twain once defined civilization as a limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. And he's right. So many things that we deem necessities are absolutely unnecessary. In fact, many Christians are finding out the same thing. That we are infected, infected with the sin, the disease of covetousness, and what's scary is we don't even know it. Solomon said something in Ecclesiastes 6. He said this, all the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. Now what he was doing there is Solomon is describing what he would say is life here under the sun. That was his way of speaking of life without God. Life without meaning. And he makes it clear that it is a consumerist lifestyle. Everything that satisfies the mouth is what we are looking for. And yet we find that the heart is not fulfilled. In verse 8, he asks the question, What hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? In other words, Solomon says, It's people at both ends of the spectrum. It is the poor and it is the rich. Wherever they are on the spectrum, they find what they're chasing to satisfy their mouth does not satisfy their heart. He sums with this lesson, Better is the sight of the eyes. Then the wandering of the desires, this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Better is the sight of the eyes, what I can see, what I have now in my hand, than that which I am chasing after. What has God given you right now? What do you have in your possession right now? Solomon, who had much, said it is best to be content with what you have than it is to live your life vainly chasing something that you think will bring you happiness and will not. That's what Jesus is going to address here in Luke chapter 12. Now please remember the context. Let's stay married to the context. Let's grasp the scenario. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus has had a meal in the home of a Pharisee. Intentionally, not accidentally, Jesus does not wash his hands. The Pharisees address that fact. Jesus, realizing that their lives are dominated by ceremony, he addresses what actually ails them, which is hypocrisy. There is an awkward tenseness in that room. They're hostile towards Jesus. The spirit in the room is a little animated and hostile. Jesus exits the room and Luke tells us, in the meantime, a vast crowd of people has filled the street because Jesus is in the vicinity. An innumerable host. As far as the eye could see, Jesus is surrounded by bodies. So much so, Luke says, they're stepping on each other. They are pressed in. 
And Luke chapter 12 is a discourse that Jesus gives to this crowd. He's standing perhaps in a doorway with the Pharisees and lawyers behind him. Meal concluded. Pressed in on by all of this mass of people. And Jesus begins by speaking to his disciples. Little flock of followers. And he says, beware of hypocrisy. Now imagine in your minds, as Jesus is giving this public discourse in this crowd, he maybe pauses for just a moment and is interrupted quite rudely, and that's verse 13. Let's look there now. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he, that is Jesus, said unto him, Man... Who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, now back to his disciples, Take heed and beware of covetousness. Now stop just for a second. Jesus in this setting is teaching. He pauses momentarily. A man interrupts him from some distance asking for mediation on a legal issue concerning the inheritance. Jesus directly addresses him and then turns back to his little flock of disciples who he has already said beware of hypocrisy. And now very pointedly Jesus says take heed And beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus pivots. He takes this interruption and he teaches a lesson. He takes this moment and he addresses his disciples. Now remember, Jesus said beware of hypocrisy because he understood this could infect his flock. And now he says beware of covetousness because he knows this is dominant within human nature. This man who's listening to Jesus teach clearly is not focused on what Jesus is saying. He's waiting on a moment to interject with his concern. It is clear within the context, he is very self-focused. As Jesus is teaching, he is thinking about his financial situation. As Jesus is talking, he's waiting for Jesus to address his issue. Please be reminded, there are so many people that they're stepping on each other. So forward in his own mind is his need that he interrupts in this moment to solve his issue about inheritance. You might think to yourself, what's the big deal about inheritance? You ever seen people fight over inheritance? It's a pretty big deal. And they'll fight over some pretty dumb and valueless things. In this context, grasp that inheritance mattered greatly. 
the older brother and the younger brother, and the receiving of that inheritance was a big deal. Think Jacob and Esau for just a second. Think Ephraim and Manasseh. Go all the way back to Old Testament thinking. The older brother would get two-thirds of whatever was left over, and the younger brother would get one-third, and it would be divvied up if there were more children than that, with the elder first in line. Apparently, we have here the younger brother, and there is conflict. It was normal for estates to be settled in a matter of a couple of months, and it was not strange for someone to go to a rabbi to gain mediation on issues such as this. You'll note that he did shout out and call Jesus master, master teacher, rabbi. So culturally speaking, it's not strange But Jesus responds rather firmly. He refuses to help this young man rather sternly. He said unto him, Man, who made me judge or divider over you? He's communicating, you clearly don't know why I am here. I am not here for such trivial temporal matters. Rather, I am here to seek and to save that which was lost. This is bigger than that issue. I'm here on eternal matters. That's what Jesus is saying. Forcefully, he addresses this man. The only explanation in my mind for this man making this kind of intrusion is he is focused on financial matters. The context that we are diving into tells us such. That Jesus knew the condition of this man's heart. And Jesus is going to use this man's interruption and the subject that he has brought up to teach his disciples. And for the second time in just a few minutes of this discourse, Jesus says, beware of something. In verse 15, he said, take heed and beware of covetousness. Take heed. Watch out. That's what Jesus is saying. Be perceptive. Use the powers of your observation. Take heed. Be on the lookout for this in the smallest way, infiltrating your thinking, infiltrating your heart. Be on the lookout and beware of covetousness. Now, Jesus said in verse 1 that he was talking to his disciples, and that's clear. Covetousness. That's a big one. It made it into one of God's big ten, didn't it? Beware of it. This is a sin now as we have addressed. Jesus talked about hypocrisy to his little flock, not because they didn't battle it, but because they did. And he's addressing covetousness, not because it's not something that they battle, but because it's right down there in the trenches. It's frontline stuff. Covetousness. Covetousness, as it is used here, is a craving. It's a desire for more. It's greediness. It is ultimately a dissatisfaction with otherwise what is enough. It's deep. It's in the nature. It's how we think. It is a lust, as one wrote, so deep within a man that he finds happiness in things instead of God. It is so deep that it desires the power that things bring more than the things themselves. 
It is an intense appetite for gain, a passion for the pleasures that things can bring. It goes beyond the pleasure of possessing things for their own sake. It simply always wants more. It is insatiable. Insatiable. Chasing something in a vain attempt to find fulfillment that never will exist. We call it the carrot on the stick, right? It motivates us. That one is always lost on me because I think if you catch it, it's a carrot. Who's chasing a carrot? Well, it's a donkey. Right. Only donkeys chase carrots and are fulfilled with it. The fact is you're chasing something in a vain attempt to find fulfillment that will always elude you if that is your aim. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5, He that loveth silver shall never be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. It's empty. Chase it. It's not the answer. Run after it. It won't bring happiness. Jesus is warning in this moment exactly what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 8 and 9 when he said, And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into a temptation and snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. It's not wealth that is the problem. They will fall into the temptation of trusting it. They'll love it more than they love God. Beware. Watch out. Be on your guard. That inheritance, young man, is about to kill you, spiritually speaking. The issue here was not mainly whether he was getting his fair share or not, but whether his desire for getting it was ultimately going to destroy him. I've referenced it already, but when God established the nation of Israel and introduces himself to them in effect after their generations of bondage with the Ten Commandments, he says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. That's easy to do. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, not his servants of any kind, not one thing in his herd. Don't covet anything that is your neighbor's. Covetousness reveals something about the darkest part of our fallen humanity. All the way back in the garden, when God gave Adam and Eve access to all the fruit of the garden, save for one tree, when Satan came to tempt, he basically sold the message that God has kept from you the very best thing. And if you ultimately want to be enlightened, and if you ultimately want to find fulfillment, you must get the one thing that eludes you, and it's the downfall. It reveals that about us. In fact, the Greek word that Jesus uses when he says beware of covetousness here is other places in the New Testament translated greed. It's the desire to have more than one's fair share. A boundless grasping for more than God has given. And Jesus responds with this. Your life, your value, your merit, your worth does not consist of the things that you possess here and now. And that flies counterculture to everything that we are marketed as, everything that is promoted to us. Jesus is saying your value, your worth 
is far beyond that. One wrote, living a life worth living has absolutely nothing to do with what you possess. Material excess will never make one alive or happy or fulfilled. Effectively, you'd better stay alert, Jesus says. Always post a guard on duty. Your fallen nature and fallen world around you will do nothing but enable you to be destroyed by covetousness. Don't give in. And even now, I have trouble reasoning this out. Because my brain aches and my heart tells me if I did just have more, it would be easier. I think so. I believe it. I think I'd like to have a second home somewhere nice. I just feel like it'd make the day-to-day better to know that I could always go there. If I was paid double what I'm currently paid, I just feel like, I mean, I feel like things would be better. I just think if we could have the next building, then we could actually serve Jesus. I just feel like then we could get started. I feel like if I just had a cooler car that didn't have a four-cylinder, but actually had an engine on it that could take you places, then it would just be better. Even as I process Scripture, I stand here and I think, how can you convince me that it's not fulfillment to get that thing, and yet that's the very truth that Jesus is communicating? You're not going to find it at the next level either. It's going to forever elude you because that's not where it lies. Jesus then tells a story and he cuts right to the heart of it. He tells the story of the rich fool. Now let me opine for a second. This is not anywhere cleared up for us in Scripture. This is merely my opinion. I think it's possible that Jesus is telling the story of the interrupting man's dad. When he starts talking about the rich fool. He's trying to convey a lesson to this man who is interrupted with a question. You think it's all about what you can put in the barn, Jesus is saying. You're not going to find fulfillment even if you get your cut of the inheritance. Here's the story that Jesus tells. The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Now in this, there is no indication that this man cheated to gain his wealth. That this man was dishonest to get his wealth. He does not abuse his servants in this story. The ground of the rich man brought forth plentifully, which is indicative of the blessing of God. Had to have the rain, had to have the sun, and the soil had to give the yield. His sin is not in much. His sin is not in the blessing nor the production of his fields. Note this as we go on. And he thought within himself. Notice that phrase. This is not a dialogue. This is a monologue. Eleven times in this story, a personal pronoun is going to be used. This man is focused on himself. I told myself. He even at one point says, so I said to my soul, soul? This is a monologue, 11 times. Listen, covetousness is aggressively self-centered. Covetousness is not only about financial things, though here in this context, it is. 
but it is aggressively self-centered. This man is an island unto himself. He's isolated into his own world. It is all about him, not about anyone else. For this man, he's doing his own thing. And Jesus says pointedly of him, he's a fool. Fool is a very strong Bible word. This is the kind of thing that in a crowd like Jesus was talking in, when he stops and he says, thou fool, everyone would have snapped their attention quickly to focus in on what Jesus was saying. He's not shading this. He's not tiptoeing around this. He says, this man who's talking to himself and aggressively self-centered about amassing goods so that he can sit back and eat, drink, and be merry is actually a fool. What is a fool? I love how one defined it. Fools, he wrote, are the ones who spit into the wind. Think about it. Fools, he said, are the ones who saw off the branch they're sitting on, constantly trying to row their boat against the current because they simply don't pay attention to how life works. Fools are unteachable. In fact, he said, the more foolish a person is, the more likely it is that he or she will become more and more isolated as time goes by. People give up on fools. The fool has become an island unto himself. Can't tell a fool anything because they've already convinced themselves. This man is so aggressively self-centered that he is addressing eternal matters when he says to his own soul, soul, you've done it. Now eat, drink, and be merry. There's nothing more you need to do, soul. You've arrived at the place of contentment and Jesus calls him a fool. You know and I know that the Bible says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. We could certainly apply that to the atheistic mindset. Ultimately, you are a fool to deny that God exists. And that foolishness will damn you to an eternity in the torment of hell. But we could also expand it to say, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. When we who grasp that God does exist, begin to live life as though God is not present. Begin to live life as though God is not paying attention. We're foolish when we imagine that all of our efforts go unchecked and ungraded by a holy and just God. Only a fool lives as though God is not paying attention. In effect, in verse 19, it concludes by him saying, I can now live like I really want to live. It's all about me and mine from here on out. And that's when Jesus says, you're a fool. Now, any one of us could sit back and say, it appears as though this man has properly planned for his life. He has torn down his little barns, he's built bigger barns, and he has stuffed them full of his goods, which means he can make it to the finish line. Most of us, I would say, are planning to financially make it to the finish line. And Jesus says, this man's a fool. Not because he didn't plan effectively for a long life, but because he did not plan effectively for a short life. He was rich enough to make it to the finish line if 
time allowed, but he was not prepared for eternity and the shortness of his life. He was not, as Jesus says, rich toward God. Jesus makes it clear in this story, your grain of sand is going to run out tonight, and all of these things that you have amassed, whose will they be then? Here's the thought. Most of us will engage in work tomorrow, planning to make it till 2050, 2055, 2060, for some 2040, for some 2025, for others on down the line. The question in this is, how many of us have planned for our life to make it to May 1st of 2023? I'm not talking about planning for the finish line here. I'm talking about planning for the finish line there. That was the foolishness of this man. Maybe that is when Jesus looks directly at the young man as he concludes his parable and he asks the question, where will the riches of this man end up then? If you've lived your whole life striving for that car, when you're in eternity, who's driving that car now? Well, CarMax. Wherever the kids took it. Who's living in that house now? I don't know. Who's swinging the golf clubs now? To be honest with you, the kids never liked golf. I'm pretty sure they just sold them. Think about what Jesus is saying. Are you rich toward God? That's what he asks in verse 21. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself. Everyone that's dominated by covetousness, everyone that is chasing that insatiable desire, Jesus wraps up in verse 21 says, all that do that are just like this rich man. They're amassing treasure, but they are not rich toward God. Rich toward God is a strange phrase. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Rich toward God in summation is ultimately the opposite of laying up earthly treasure. I like how one amplified this. Being rich toward God is the opposite of treating the self as though it were made for things and not for God. Being rich toward God is the opposite of acting as if life consists in the abundance of possessions, not in the abundance of knowing God. Being rich toward God is the heart being drawn toward God as our riches, moving toward God as our riches, counting God greater riches than anything on earth. It is finding our value in God. It is preparing for eternity. It is living life satisfied with what God has given us right now. Please understand, it is not much that is a sin. It is trusting in much. It is not money that is the root of all evil. It is the love of it. It is the insatiable desire to chase down that vain thing that will never fulfill us. Therein lies the problem. What controls you and what controls me? One wrote, five minutes after we die, we will know exactly how we wished we had lived. But God has given us his word so that we don't have to wait to die to find out. And he's given us his spirit to empower us to live that way now. Ask yourself this question, he wrote. Five minutes after I die, what will I wish I had given away while I had the chance? When you come up with the answer, give it away. 
What will you wish you had done to please the Lord? When you settle on that, do it like you don't have tomorrow. Do it now. This man's fatal flaw was not that he didn't plan to live a long life. It was that he did not plan to live a short life. He was rich in this world, but when he exited this world, all of that belonged to sons who maybe are these two very boys who are arguing and debating over what they get out of the barn. And this man now stands penniless in the presence of God and has to answer, what will you give in exchange for your soul? And at that moment, he can't reach back into the amassed wealth of the barns. He has to stand before God empty. That's why the Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because we come to God and we acknowledge we're bankrupt. Spiritually speaking, there's nothing that I offer. I have to have Jesus. Let me just say now as I conclude. I wish that Jesus, in this moment, was pointing this message to the massive crowd. And in some ways, he certainly is. But he is directing this discourse through 13.9 to his disciples, his little flock of people. And he has the audacity to say to this little flock of brave people who are, who are honestly living in danger to be followers of Jesus Christ. And he says to them, true blue followers, beware of hypocrisy. And to them who maybe don't have two nickels to rub together, or shillings, or mites. We'll make it really biblical. They don't even have two mites to rub together. And he says to them, beware of covetousness. Don't live your life like all there is is this world. In a few moments, this street scene is going to break up and you masses will disperse and you'll all go back to where you came from. But this truth will override all of it. Beware of covetousness. Be on the lookout for it. Watch out for it. It's not just financial things. It can't be all about you. Don't live life aggressively self-centered. Don't live life on what you've been through, what you're going through, what you're aiming at, how you want it to be, how you think it should happen, what you're chasing down. Remember, your grain of sand could drop through that hourglass, proverbially speaking, tonight, and you'll have to stand before God and acknowledge how you lived it. You say, well, if I could just lower my handicap, I'd be happier. If I could, if the Lord would just tarry until I made it to retirement. If we could just alter things enough where I was getting my way, then we could really go forward. So many people are sitting in this room right now, dominated by the emptiness of their life. Literally struggling to silence the shout and the aches from the inside. And it's all because they're aggressively self-centered and chasing something that will never satiate, never satisfy. What are you doing for God? Are you rich toward God? Is there any aspect of your existence that is pursuing that in in the least degree? Would you please bow your heads just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. 
We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.